very first criminal investigation in all of human history is chronicled for us in Genesis chapter 3. Have you ever thought about that? Obviously, Genesis chapter 3, this monumental passage in Scripture, probably not often thought of as the first criminal investigation, but that's what we do see there, among many other things, important things. We see a vivid picture in Genesis chapter 3 of this elemental process of a law being broken, of guilt being experienced, of an investigation being performed, of questions being asked of suspects, of guilt and blame being ascribed to the guilty, and then justice being served. We know from this biblical narrative in Genesis chapter 3, and we also know it from personal experience, that in one way or another, we're all to blame for violating God's law and casting what was his perfect order into what is now corruption and chaos in this cursed world. And like these original ancestors of ours, we are prone, we are inclined to blame anyone and everyone and anything and everything else for our sin. I mean, after all, you look at the narrative and you look around you and you think about your own life experience, there's plenty of guilt and blame to go around. And we're more than inclined to articulate that. As we continue to navigate this tumultuous season that we're in of racial tension in our country, we know that there are ongoing and loud claims of injustice and there are ringing demands for social justice. And we know that. Injustice indeed is a persistent issue in our culture. We know that injustice manifests in many ways. It takes many shapes and forms all throughout society. And we know that we're a part of society and we're thereby responsible in some way for what happens in it. And so what what was true in the garden is true today. There's always enough blame to go around. But that really doesn't answer the question of who's to blame in a meaningful way. And it certainly doesn't answer that question in a comprehensively biblical way. Well, in just a moment, Pastor Shane Kohler, teaching pastor at Faith Community Church in Woodstock, Georgia, will join me in our fourth episode of the Building Faith podcast series on racial tension. And we're going to try to address this fundamental question, who's to blame? And we're going to try to do it from a very thorough biblical perspective. So stay tuned. All right, Shane. So as we come back together again for another episode of the Building Faith podcast, we're going to continue on in our discussion around this really difficult and challenging and yet uh, timely uh, subject of racial tension. And what we've done over the last three episodes is we've kind of framed up our discussion, each discussion in those episodes around some major questions that we're trying to tackle or address in some way. And first uh, episode that we talked about, um, the absence of the gospel and in, in a lot of this conflict and a lot of this debate and the ideologies underpinning mm-hmm the sides that are taken, um, and we asked the question, where's the hope in it all? And really, we pointed to, to individual believers to ask that question of ourselves. As we're, as we're engaged in 
in discussion and debate around us, or we're listening to different people chiming in on their opinions about things, we need to be asking the question, where's the hope in all mm-hmm. of this? Um, then the second episode, we really got into sort of trying to more clearly define terms, terms like racism. What, what is meant by this term, especially from the vantage point of critical race theory, which is the dominant sort of underlying ideology behind all this. And we were asking the question, what do you mean? What do you mean when you say these things? And then last time we were together, we basically, in kind of an overarching way, tried to address the question, where is all this going? Talked about the sort of the impetus behind critical race theory of really dismantling the current power structures, mm. dismantling society in a sense, and uh, and how you know this is a this is a very comprehensive uh, goal in mind here. Where are we going today? This is a session four. This is episode four. Well, uh, we 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 kind of have to uh, weave back in to some of those same themes, and and really particularly into the last theme that we were talking about. Uh, in fact, you know. Maybe even before we talked about where it's going, we we probably should have uh, drilled down a little bit more into what I want to talk about today, which is really who's who's to blame mm. for all of this stuff. That is uh, so much of what is, um, I guess you say, would is driving most of this. Uh, there's anger, there's frustration. I think there is from all sides recognition that things don't run the way they need to run and people aren't treated the way they need to be treated and there are um there are issues that are are uh, heartbreaking you know when you when you know that there are there there are bad apples there are bad actors whether it is out of the law enforcement community whether it's out of the black community whether it's out of uh you know just the the larger uh, population, none of us are in the illusion that any of these structures are perfect, or any of these communities are perfect, or or you know that that everyone does things right all the time. So there very clearly are bad actors. There are bad elements to society, um, to um, you know. To policing, and there may be debate about how far and extensive that is. Um, you know, people uh, profile. Um, you know, uh, African American communities, African Americans out of the community, and and um, you know how often and how much that happens is our areas of debate. But 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 while we might debate the extent, everyone knows that this is an imperfect system, imperfect society, and. There, th- these things do happen. The question then becomes, uh, who's responsible for that? Like, uh, who, wh- wh- who's to really blame for, for these things? And, and uh, there's two sides, I guess you might say, in this debate. The uh, social justice side would, would really press that we all are equally so we all share guilt. I don't know if the word equally would be a word they would use, but we all bear guilt when there are bad actors. We all are responsible because we basically we basically have um, collective guilt, collective responsibility. And so you get to this issue 
of collectivism versus individualism. And, uh, and for those who come at this from a uh, you know, supposed evangelical or biblical standpoint, there are many who are saying that this is actually the way the scripture would tell you that you have to think about these ills in society. That the scripture actually paints the picture of collective guilt, collective responsibility, that there's a collectivist sort of presupposition. And any sort of individualism that we might assume is more a product of a Western, uh, maybe even a, a you know, dominant white culture mentality or a rationalistic sort of uh, uh, mentality, but not a biblical mentality. That if we actually sort of reorient ourselves back to the biblical structure, we would think about ourselves not as an individual, essentially selfishly, but we would think of ourselves collectively, and everything is about collective good, and everything is about collective responsibility. Now, just, just to kind of make sure we're clearly tracking here. It doesn't sound to me like you're talking about collective guilt, let's say, in the sense of all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You're talking about something a little more specific than that, right? Yeah, and just to be clear, uh, you know, what, what, uh, what, what you're referring to is universalism. That's right. <laughs> Universal guilt is true. Okay. There is guilt across the board. Okay. Every, uh, every one of us sin. But what we're talking about is in any particular, uh, you know, societal ill, um, social sin, if you want to say it that way, that there is a collective guilt. Uh, and this is not a new idea, by the way. It's been around. Wheeler Robinson, um, you know, was a, a theologian who years ago wrote about corporate responsibility or uh, corporate soul, as he used to call it. And uh, tried to paint this picture of Israel having a uh, sort of a more of a corporate mentality than we do in Western society today. And theologians uh, have interacted with that, and and by and large, evangelical theologians have rejected that. Uh, he, you know, he uses famously some some incidences out of the Old Testament that would appear on the surface for some people to teach collectivism, but when you look at them, they're really not that way. You know, one of the more well-known is the sin of Achan. If uh, you know your scripture in Joshua, the children of Israel were commanded to take the city of Jericho and to utterly and completely destroy everything that was there. But Achan, you remember, uh, held back certain things uh, for himself and then they go on to their next battle at Ai, and Israel is defeated. And in Joshua 7.10, the Lord said to Joshua, Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them, commanded them and they've taken some of the devoted, gain, uh, devoted things that they've stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Now, he, he, he accuses Israel, all of Israel seemingly of doing this, even though we know from the text it was just Achan who did it. Hmm. 
And so this would be one of the texts they point to. Here you have an individual who did something, but in some way his act is, uh, is uh, or Israel is collectively held responsible for his sinful act. And before I go any further there in Joshua, the, the parallel, you know, with the issues of racial uh, prejudice and, and, and racism and the, and the accusation that even systemic racism is uh, collectively something we're all responsible for, even if we didn't individually commit some act of hatred towards someone of another race, that we are all collectively responsible for sins that were committed by even just a few, in the sense maybe that we just tolerated. That's the connection that people make. Right. However, it white is... Majo- white majority culture is Israel in this yeah. in this NL, in this That's comparison. right. Yes. And, and so even though in the right. accusations, even though you personally don't have any animus toward anyone of another race, and even though, you know, you haven't done anything or maybe you did it long, long ago and you don't you still bear the guilt, not just of not just of things that are going on right now, you know, across the street or across the nation. Uh, in the sense that you're tolerating it, and this is sort of the the slogan, you know, uh, silence is violence. Right, right. Uh, all that sort of is coming out of this same mentality. You're not only guilty for that, but you're guilty. I mean, you're you're responsible for things that happened, you know, in your childhood, even prior to your childhood, even further back. There are things that woven in that are woven into society that you bear collective guilt for, and, and, and we'll talk about it in a minute. You know how this. How this is sort of justified from a from a Bible a biblical standpoint, generationally. Mm-hmm. But right here, just talking collectively, uh, this accusation that you know Israel was held uh, was held responsible for Achan's sin, it, it is just simply poor exegesis. Sure, it's just poor interpretation because if you go on and read the rest of the text, uh, Joshua goes and sends out messengers throughout all of Israel, and then those messengers go through you know, each of their tribes and each of their tents and all of that until they finally whittle down who it was who did this, uh, and they find Achan, and they take him and his sons and his daughters, and they bring them to the valley of Achor. And uh, Joshua says in verse 25, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones and they burned them and, with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised a great heap over the stones that remains to this day. So at the end of the day, Joshua and the children of Israel and the Lord held an individual, or in this case, an individual and his families. It's unstated in the text, but the assumption is when Achan took the items back to his house and hid them, his family members were aware complicit. of what he did. They were complicit. Mm-hmm. But not all Israel was stoned, and not, is- not all Israel was burned. They were charged with the responsibility of finding the bad actors and dealing with them appropriately, and they did deal with them appropriately. And guess what? When that happened, the curse of the Lord stopped. Yeah. The, 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 the curse didn't carry on. They didn't bear perpetual responsibility for that. There was a clear distinction between the, the bad actors and those who held them responsible. responsible. So, so 
we could say it in this way. Israel suffered some of the consequences of unrestrained evil for a period of time, but when they, when they clamped down on it and did something about it, the, the, the consequences of that began to subside in Israel's history. That's, a, that's an understandable reality, just being an observer of your own family life mm-hmm. or your own community life or your own church life. And certainly, it's a, a reasonable um, conclusion you can draw from observing just you know, cycles of history that even, even though you have this example in the Old Testament, you don't even need that, per se, to see the, the reasonableness of the principles it's, it's highlighting. That in a community, any kind of community, any kind of size of the community, any kind of makeup of the community, if there is sin, of a single person in that community, a true community, mm-hmm. that there's yep. going to be consequences that other people could quite likely experience as a result of that person's sin. Yes. Uh, you know, think about the 2008 financial crisis. Yeah. There were some bad actors at some big banks yeah. who, for their own greed and purposes, were uh, – taking very irresponsible and, in some cases, unethical steps uh, with their companies. And it plunged uh, their companies into bankruptcy. And we all bear the responsibility that in, in uh, the you know, higher debt for our country, higher need for tax revenue, you know, more strain on the economy. Many of us went through, you know, um, housing uh, declines and all that stuff and lost years of revenue, lost jobs, all that other stuff. We bear the, the consequences of the sin of these people. And, and to some extent, you know, we, uh, to, to the extent that they weren't being governed or uh, regulated in, in a good way, um, and, and maybe the politicians that needed to be in place were not in place, all that stuff sort of, so, does sort of trickle down to some extent, but I am not responsible for over-leveraging Bear Stearns right. or, or any of those. That's not my responsibility. I, I'm suffering the consequences of some of that, and, and everyone's suffering the consequences of some of that, um, but that's a lot different than this kind of collective uh, mentality. Now, this works itself out in a, in a number of other places in, um, in Scripture, you know, uh, we don't have time to look at them all, but Second Chronicles 6, for example, you have Solomon standing up and, and praying a prayer of, of uh, acknowledgement and a prayer of confession. You know, if we sin, we will suffer these consequences, and then the prayer that the Lord would be merciful and gracious, as if he's confessing on behalf of, of the nation, and he bears the responsibility of some of their former sins. But there's nothing in there that suggests that Solomon views himself or every individual as bearing guilt for the sins he's mentioning. He's simply acknowledging the potential consequences of some bad actors within the nation. Another one would be Daniel 9. Daniel 9 is one of the great prayers of confession that you'll find anywhere in Scripture. And a godly, godly man like Daniel, who has been in captivity, um, for you know, a good portion of his life, because of the idolatry and the sin of Israel, prays a prayer of confession 
in Daniel 9, asking the Lord to remember his promises to Israel. And it's a wonderful prayer of confession. And Daniel is using the plural we, or your people, you know, several times throughout that. Uh, But there's never any implication that Daniel is calling himself an idolater. He's acknowledging that God was justified in sending Israel into captivity because of the sins of some bad actors. So acknowledging the justification of consequences is a lot different than, than saying that people have collective guilt. Yeah. And then also in, in, the, in the context of just corporate prayer as a general principle, I mean, you're, you're, you're praying in the we oftentimes. Mm. If, I, if I'm praying in a corporate setting and I say things like, Lord, we come before you and we confess that we often fall short of your, 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 your commands. And I mean, I, I make these sort of corporate confession type statements. I don't in my mind, nor does God receive it, I believe, in a way that somehow is representative of every individual's confession that's being made through me. Mm-hmm. And, and, and thereby absolving someone individually because I, I, I pray in that way. So. That's, a, that's a kind of, uh, you know, uh, almost, a, uh, use a technical word, sacerdotalism uh, or priesthood sure. that God doesn't convey to, to any one of us. And, and, you know, it's a kind of a collectivism that isn't represented anywhere in Scripture. So people who are using these passages, passages like Ezra 9 or, uh, you know, any of these others, People who are using these passages are misconstruing or they're confusing the issue of collective guilt versus, uh, you might say, um, you know, national consequence. And in, in every one of these confession prayers and in even these situations like Aiken, what you're really dealing with is, uh, you know, widespread consequences. And some of us see it in our own families. I mean, I, I, I don't want to delve into, you know, any kind of um, you know, ne- unnecessary detail, but I'll just say, I mean, there were sinful things in my uh, ho- home growing up mm-hmm. that, uh, that I suffered the consequences from. Sure. You know, there was a divorce in my home. And uh, because of the divorce, you know, my, my mom and dad were split. I was raised in a single parent home that, you know, as never, that's not, not a good situation in, in all of those cases. And if we were to go back and do a detailed analysis of how that affected, you know, not just our family financially, how did it affect, uh, how did it affect us educationally, socially, all of those things, you could, you could quantify yeah. the, the consequences that were felt from all of that. But it doesn't mean that I'm guilty. Yeah. However, I did very much, you know, face the consequences. And I could say, I could say that in God's justice, it was, it was right and just. When sin is dealt with that way, right? Justice does call for consequences. We reap what you sow. So, uh, so all that stuff is, I think, the right way to understand those passages. And those who are who are suggesting that Israel had some sort of inherent collective mentality that runs counter to the modern evangelical view are just misreading the scripture. And that really doesn't even. That really doesn't even address the the often potential problems of comparing Israel to not Israel, you know, yeah. like to 
to another nation or to the United States of America or to whatever you know yeah. group or whatever. There are some, is. if you want to say, there 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 are some basic covenantal differences yeah, that yeah. that have got to be unwound there as well. Yeah, you know, people um, will sometimes use uh, passages uh, such as uh, Exodus four, Ezekiel thirty four, that talk about the Lord visiting iniquity. Uh, of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. You know, for example, Exodus 20, don't make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven or that which is on earth beneath or that which is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For the Lord your God is a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations to those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And essentially he says the same thing uh, in several other places throughout scripture. And so this is another place where people take these passages and suggest that therefore there is generational guilt that even though something happened you know, three or four generations ago because of this inherent collectivism, that we still bear the guilt and we still you know, kind of deserve the punishment generations later for things such as uh, shadow slavery. But again, this is a misreading of the passage of Scripture. He's not suggesting that, um, you know, we have to bear the guilt, you know, if, if, our, if our granddad was, uh, you know, somehow a, a rapist, a sexual assaulter, that we all sort of should, should face the consequences of that. That's, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, that God's not going to lighten up if you continue in this sin. It's not as if God's going to become an accommodationist. Uh, well, you know, uh, our, it's just kind of who we are, our environment uh, just sort of uh, um, made us this way, and so God's going to go lighter on us because this is kind of the way we were brought up. That's, he said, no, if it's sin, he's going to punish every generation because it's still sin. In other words, God doesn't have uh, a, a sliding s- slope of morality that 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 gradually lessens the standard as society declines. That's what he's saying. It's going to be it's going to be something for every generation that's go- that they're going to be held accountable to. Hmm. So I, you know, I think again, when you frame this in your mind, you begin to see that these claims of uh, so so called collectivism uh, is. Uh, is not out there, and you know. Again, so, so scholars would would use this, and this, unfortunately, like many things, is something that had to be birthed in academia. You know, <laughs> no common man would probably read the scripture and come to this. So you had to have some really, really smart guy to mess this up. There's a saying, you know, you have to go to college to believe something as stupid as that. Yes, that's that's exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> so so scholars have have done have have taken this and and tried to suggest therefore that Western society as we know it is essentially deficient. This sort of um gross individualism. And and if by individualism, you know, you mean that kind of concern only for self, the sort of rugged individualism uh, that, that might be wrapped up in some sort of uh, you know, ideal of American culture, if that's what you're talking about, then that is a true deficiency because we are not really independent people and we shouldn't be so self-centered. Yeah. Uh, 
um, if you're, you know, if you're talking about self-sufficiency, that's pride. But if you renounce that kind of prideful, self-centered individualism, and you're talking about individual responsibility, mm-hmm. that's scripture. Yeah, that's biblical. And the scripture could not be more clear on this issue than what you find, for example, in Ezekiel 18. Uh, by the way, it's also you know found in Deuteronomy twenty four sixteen, which says the uh, the fathers shall not be put to death because of the transgressions uh, for their children, nor shall the children be put to death because of their fathers. But each one shall be put to death for his own sin. So you couldn't have anything more clear right there in the law of God. He restricts any notion of collective guilt. So if you, first of all, just kind of correct your thinking on all of these passages that are being twisted, and then just let the scripture speak for itself in its plainest sense, it becomes clear that individualism isn't a product of Western society. In fact, individual responsibility that is found in Western society is built on the foundation of biblical worldview yeah it's actually marxism and 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 those uh sort of new ideologies of the 20th century that have tried to overthrow uh you know individualism those didn't rise out of a a judeo-christian mentality yeah that's why from a political analysis standpoint a lot of what we're seeing is being described as a neo-marxism yeah because it's it's founded on this kind of collectivism. Yeah. Yes. And there's and and that's the sad thing. And you know, we've talked about this in the past. The sad thing is is uh is that so many Christians who have you know tried to appropriate the scripture into this mentality have essentially wound up with a message that is indistinguishable from Marxism. They may not themselves be Marxists, at least they don't believe they are, or they may not themselves, you know, uh, you know, think that they've, you know, arisen out of this out of a study of Marxism, so they're offended when you would call them Marxists, but the reality is they're naive for not realizing that their message is indistinguishable yeah. from that those kinds of collectivist mentalities. You know, Ezekiel 18, I think ought to be just a resounding um, you know, kind of a uh rebuke to this whole mentality. It talks very specifically about a man who is an oppressor, uh, who, who is guilty, who does all kinds of terrible things, and the potential of whether or not his guilt should be borne by other people in society, most particularly his own children. It says, Ezekiel 18.10, if a father, if a, if he fathers a son, uh, actually, let's back up. It says, um, uh, we could go back to verse five. If a man is righteous and does what is just and right, if he does not eat upon the mountains or lift up his eyes to idols of the house of Israel, does not defile his, his neighbor's wife or approach a woman in her time of impurity, does not oppress anyone but restores the debt to the debtor's pledge, commits no robbery, gives bread to the hungry, and covers the naked with, gar- with garments, does not lend his money in interest or take profits, withholds his hand from injustice, 
executes true justice between man and woman, walks in my statutes, keeps my rules by acting faithfully, he's righteous. He shall surely live, declares the Lord. If, if he fathers a son who is violent, a shedder of blood, who does any of these things, though he himself has done none of these things, who even eats upon the mountains, defiles his neighbor's wife, oppresses the poor and needy, commits robbery, does not restore the pledge, lift up, lift up, lifts up his eyes to idols, commits abomination, lends an interest, takes profit. Shall he then live? He shall not live. He has done these abominations. He shall surely die. His blood shall be upon himself. Verse 14. Now suppose this man fathers a son who sees all the sins that his father has done. He sees and does not do likewise. Now, let me stop for a second. We're in a third generation here. Hmm. So the first man is righteous. He does everything righteously. He fathers a son who is unrighteous mm-hmm. and does all these unrighteous things. Now he's dealing with the third generation. This man, he says, fathers a son and, and his son sees the, fa- the sins that his father has done and does not do them. He does not eat upon the mountains or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, does not defile his way neighbor's wife, does not oppress anyone, exacts no pledge, commits no robbery, gives his bread to the hungry, covers the naked with a garment, withholds his hand from iniquity, takes no interest or profit, obeys my rules, walks in my statutes. He shall not die for his father's iniquity. He surely shall live. As for his father, because he's practiced extortion, robbed his neighbor, did what is not good among his people, behold, he shall die. Verse 19, yet you say, Why should not the son suffer for the iniquity of the father? I mean, isn't that the exact question that's being asked today? When the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to observe all my my statutes, he shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. Now, I don't know how you could get any more clear. And it's not. Just simply one sin. He covers the gamut. Everything from idolatry to immorality, and yes, everything from oppression and injustice in this passage. The very things that are at the heart of current discussion. Mm -hmm. And he is so clear on this issue that every individual and and every generation will be judged on its own action, on its own merits, if you will. And, um, you know, this is obviously uh, not looking at this from an individual salvation standpoint. He's talking about societal issues here. Yeah. And, and he's acknowledging that we can look at the sins of our fathers and make a judgment about what's unjust and turn away from it, and the Lord would not hold us responsible. Hmm. So this is, a, this is a rebuke to all this collectivism. It's a rebuke to... All those evangelicals who have bought in to you know Robinson's view, who have bought into sort of a sort of a um, uh, a veiled Marxist collectivist view, and are going out there and using these slogans, which are implying this collective guilt, and we just need to stand up and say it has no basis in the Scripture, none. Yeah. yeah. And it's not like we need to kind of inch our way towards that. It doesn't have justification. We need to stand up and and proclaim the message that, uh, to go back to your original point, Richard, 
that we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Mm-hmm. But, 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 but by the mercy of God, no matter what our background is, if we were uh, arrogant, if we were hateful, if we were malicious, if we were prejudiced, if we were racist, whatever it might be, no matter what those sins are, when we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Mm. Now, we need to take some time then to, to, to talk about what happens after that. Yeah. Because something happens. Something happens when we as individuals own our guilt and responsibility. And it's, it's glorious. It's amazing. Um, it's a change by the power of God, but it has real significance for the way we understand theologically what's going on right now. And as we as Christians need to think clearly on the issue of this radical change uh, for believers when they come to know Christ and break from society. So that's where we're headed next time? Yes. So just uh, kind of wrapping this up, uh, just a great... Um a great reminder, uh, I, I, as you were talking about collectivism and, and, and making everyone culpable for the sins of one in the past and that kind of thing, I, I think that just, I know that we're going to deal with this in the next session, I'm sure, but I just can't help but think of how we need to be reflecting upon this because this kind of collective mindset cuts both ways. It doesn't matter. Uh, which side of a debate you might be on, especially in this whole racial uh, charged mm-hmm. kind of um, environment that we're in. If you see someone doing something egregious, it's very easy to ascribe that kind of character to anyone else who might look like them, mm-hmm. regardless of what their skin color might be. And so I think that it just th- this 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 discussion bears upon us the reality that we need to be reflecting upon our own sin and our own culpability before a holy God, not looking for the collective culpability that we can ascribe to some large group of people. This is this is a uh, uh, MLK's call. Yeah, that we will be judged by the content of our character, not the color of our skin. Yeah. And we all long for that day. Yeah. And that's exactly where we ought to be aiming. Yeah. Well, we'll look forward to our, our next time to be together and just continuing this discussion. And, and uh, thanks for being with us today.